Inescapably foreign. Welcome to Without Borders. If this is your first time tuning in, know that this is the podcast for nomads, immigrants, refugees, third culture children, or anyone else that feels inescapably foreign. Remember, I do have a website, withoutborders.fyi. You can tune in there to join the community and also read some more interesting articles about cultural psychology or get some more in-depth information about people's immigration experiences. Today, I am here with uh, Dr. Matthew Niblett and Chris Beret. Matthew is the director of the Independent Transport Commission, which is Britain's foremost independent transport and land use think tank. Matthew holds a doctorate from the University of Oxford and was a senior research associate at the university's Transport Studies Unit. Uh, Chris is the director of Social Research Associates and a social scientist specialized in transport and urban policy. Chris has advised the House of Commons, Transport Committee, TFL, the DFT, and overseas governments on disability and diversity issues. In other words, I have a lot to learn from Chris and Matthew. And today we're focusing on the project and the book, Why Travel? Um, so can you describe the project to us and why the ITC is carrying out this far-reaching study? Thank you, uh, Nolan. It's a great pleasure to be on the uh, podcast today. Um, the ITC is a travel and transport yes. think tank. And so what we're particularly interested in are some of these really big questions, these long-term uh, questions about the fundamental motivations that drive human movement, uh, which is something which isn't either really studied in the academic world or often looked at in, in government. And we felt uh, that there needed to be um, much more attention paid to understanding these motivations, uh, which which drive this you know, absolutely crucial aspect of, of human existence. Uh, so the project really sort of started to begin to pull together expertise from a much wider body of uh, knowledge uh, than is normally found uh, in the in the transport world uh, to try and really get a kaleidoscope of insights into the reasons that drive uh, drive human travel with the hope that once we'd assembled that kaleidoscope of insights the whole would be bigger than the sum of its parts and we would then be able to uh, hopefully get a much deeper and richer understanding of uh, travel motivations it's been a long time in the making, uh, but we decided that perhaps the best way of disseminating this knowledge was through a book. Uh, so the, the project has been working to develop uh, the book that was published last year by Bristol University Press. I think uh, I don't know whether that's in reverse, but uh, I'm sure you can put a link up um, to the uh, to the website in due course. Uh, the book itself brings together, uh, I think, twelve. Um, insights from different areas from biology to philosophy to sociology to economics um, all exploring different aspects of, of what drive um, what drives human travel uh, and we hope that you know together this this is a kind of resource that, that people can use and, and find helpful in terms of thinking about uh, this this extraordinary capacity that humans have desire that they have for travel 
Yeah, I, the book really covers everything when we think about why travel, right? It covers the biological, philosophical, economical, sociological, spiritual, anthropological, technological, right? I'm running out of calls here, but it really covers everything. Um, now, uh, Chris, um, the section that you wrote and specialized in is the sociological part of it, correct? That's right, yes. But um, before I go into that, I was just going to say, we could have had loads more chapters. So, for instance, there's one on literature, but what about music? You know, what about art? What about photography? So lots of people who bought the book said, yes, but why didn't you have this chapter instead? And and I think we could have gone on adding about 10 others in the end. Do you think you will write an updated version or do you think you'll update it on the website? I think we'll do both, but I think what we will do is develop some arguments stemming from the book, because if you think about it, Nolan, at the moment, people are beginning to say, you know, we need to think about carbon, we need to stop traveling, particularly flying, um, and, and, you know, so it's become very apt debate because the message of the book is that actually there is a lot of value in travel and we wouldn't be where we are as human beings today if we hadn't traveled so that was you know that was the key message of the book and it's very timely with everyone saying oh i better not fly and see my granny for christmas you know yes and um you want me if i was a sociology chapter i just and yes. uh, maybe we could come back to that but that deals with things like the role of travel and people moving around the world in order to, for instance, better themselves. So the whole issue of social mobility has often depended on moving away from where you grew up to have a wider experience, to get a job, to, you know, experience a different culture, um, or even to, you know, as the biology chapter mentioned, to mix the gene pool. You know, where do people meet their partners? Imagine if they only met people in the village they lived in. It would be a very strange world, wouldn't it? So a lot of themes within the sociology chapters. Definitely. And that biological perspective actually made me think of another study um, with the law of averageness, where we're attracted to averageness. Average is, of course, not being, oh, that person's a 5 out of 10 and that kind of superficial way of looking at it. But average is being the averageness of all faces. And some studies have found that people are most attracted to mixed races, which also kind of makes me think about why we might intrinsically be motivated to, to uh, travel as well, is to mix, as you say. And of course, that strengthens the gene pool and everything like that. Um, now, Chris, just touching on what you said earlier about the environmental aspects of it, and you said some people are scared to travel now because they don't want to have as much of a carbon footprint. What are some of the um, the positive aspects environmentally? And, and Matthew, feel free to jump in here whenever you want as well. Well, if I can just say, socially, it's important for people to experience other cultures. Um, not just, you know, because it's a good thing to do, but it, because it creates harmony. I do believe that by traveling, you understand people. I mean, you know, there is the other side of the coin in that you go to another place and you just spend your whole life comparing 
how unfavorable it is with your own culture. But I think most people, when they travel, do gain and gain an understanding. And most people are made very welcome when they travel. So um, I do think that that's an important thing. But, you know, the, the environmental challenge is definitely something we need to think about. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the things you're thinking about right now with that? I think some adverse effects of um, being too local. I mean, one of my, um, my company used to be in Leicester, which is a big multicultural city in the UK. Um, and that is divided by religion. In one end of town, Muslims live, and the other end, Hindus. And they have been, the young people have been fighting each other. You know, all the shops are locally, they don't mix very much. And I think that is an epitomizes the need to people to mix and experience other cultures. Definitely. Matthew, anything you want to add to that? I think on the, um, Chris is the, the expert on on sociology on the on the environment side. I was going to just um, say one of the big policy problems that we're facing in the UK and elsewhere at the moment is how do you square the circle of of satisfying people's this inherent desire to travel with the fact that at the moment at least a lot of travel is very carbon intensive um, and there's a real conundrum there because particularly. For long distance travel, it's so carbon intensive that there's an increasing uh, moral imperative perhaps to do less long distance travel than, than was the case in the past, at least until more carbon neutral ways of, uh, of traveling can be found. Uh, so I, I think one of the themes in the book, though, is that it's really important when it comes to making policy that we don't just fall into the trap that we have to always be focusing on less travel per se. It's as much about encouraging better travel. Uh, and that tends to mean more sustainable ways of travel, perhaps focusing on what is imperfectly called slow travel, uh, which tends to mean slow in terms of taking your time over it, um, yeah. rather than focusing on speed and distance um, uh, so uh, so much. Uh, and also on the quality of of our travel experiences, because frankly, as we know, some aspects of longer distance travel, uh, particularly going through uh, uh, airports, for example, is not always a very uh, happy or pleasant experience, and that that time actually might be better spent focusing on um, more enjoyable forms of travel uh, closer to home. One of the um, one of the issues that came out of the book was the way in which we make decisions about investment in transport. So at the moment in the UK, for instance, when you decide whether you're going to fund a new rail system, things like speed and journey time have a big impact on whether they think it's worth investing in that new railway. So we've got high speed too you know, nearly finished now from London to Birmingham, reducing the time from over an hour to 40 minutes. But a lot of people are saying, actually, 40 minutes is not a brilliant time for me to get my computer out and do a bit of work. 
Um, yeah. And so, you know, have we overestimated the value of time in travel? And is it more, as Matthew just said, to do with quality and what you do, particularly now you can work whilst you're traveling um, and so on. So that really is changing the goalposts. But I think the people who make investment decisions haven't really caught up with that. Yeah, definitely. And you touch on that in the book. I know it's kind of cliche to say, but the way you described it in the book is much more in depth. But it's it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Right. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with that as well. Absolutely. This is something about traveling in itself that you get to know people and talk to people, sit next to people who you wouldn't normally have a lot to do with. And a lot of people have told us how they quite enjoy that experience of talking and meeting other people on the train as they're cycling around the town or even in an aeroplane, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've noticed it from my own life and just talking to others, usually the best stories whether they're adverse or not, are the are the the the, the journey itself, because that's usually where, uh, yeah, things go unexpected, and I think that's where the um, the most interesting stories come out is mm-hmm. when these unexpected experiences, because you usually know a little bit about the destination, that's why you're going there, but you don't really know what to expect when you're when you're traveling there, right? No, well, I once did um, a TV program with um, a man who I would call, you know, fanatical car user. And he told me how he hated public transport because he didn't like this meeting other people. He found it quite scary. And Mm. he said, you know, in my car, I'm cocooned in the, 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 if you like, the security of my own space. And I thought, well, that was kind of quite unusual. I imagine a lot of people listening today would not take that view and would actually really enjoy travel and maybe did a gap year traveling or make a point of, say, going by rail across Siberia just for the hell of the experience, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, a little bit later, I want to touch on the gap years because you mentioned that in the book, and I wanted to hear about your gap year experiences or one of your most pivotal um, experiences. But before we get into that, a little bit more about the, the environment. What else can we do to to travel um, efficiently? Uh, I mean, when it comes to carbon, car, um, to make sure that we don't use too much um, carbon and to to travel in the most environmentally friendly possible way. Well, I I suppose one aspect is to to focus on, um, focus less on speed and distance, which pushes you towards forms of transport, which tend, at least at the moment, to um, to be more sustainable and also perhaps to focus more on on travel which has an active element um one of the things that's clearly becoming more popular for instance is is travel to places where rather than spending your time zooming around it involves hiking or walking through some aspect of the natural world or uh, some aspects of the local uh community in that uh, country that you're kind of visiting um so mm-hmm. those kind of 
um, so, um... activities so uh, helpful. Mm. Chris. I think also um, the ITC, is the organisation Matthew and I represent, are doing some work at the moment on the future of technology. And I, I do really believe that if we have a need to do something, the technology often follows it, as it did with COVID, you know, when we came up with vaccinations overnight. And um, the ITC is just doing publishing, about to publish um, a research study looking at the future in aviation uh, and how that will reduce the uh, carbon output. And um, I know some people are very pessimistic about it, and clearly there's a, a crisis at the moment. But I think I'm quite optimistic that in a few years we'll have cracked that. And I don't know, Matthew, you know, you know more about that research than I do, but there are some very optimistic developments, aren't there? For aviation, yes. I, mean, I think I think um, the problem with with aviation is just just because of the nature of, of what it involves, it needs very energy intensive um, forms of propulsion. So the, the technological hurdle in terms of getting to a position where we can we can fly in a carbon neutral way is much higher than for other forms of transport. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, two areas where there's been a lot of investment is in more sustainable aviation fuels. So for instance, if we can, mm -hmm. for instance, create uh, the kerosene is the main form of, of fuel used uh, in um, in jet planes at the moment. If we can, for instance, make a significant part of the kerosene from um, various synthetic or um, biological um, uh, methods which reduce the overall carbon footprint, now that's already helping to go a long way to reducing the, um, the carbon footprint from um, flying. Beyond that, obviously, is the the holy grail would be some form of propulsion, which doesn't involve um, fossil fuels at all. But I think initially that's going to be particularly focused on short haul flights. So if if, if you do have electric propulsion um, or battery powered sort of planes, then those those will be for uh, short haul flights, probably under a thousand kilometres. Uh, I think for the longer haul flights, okay. Carbon neutral flying is further away. Yes. Now, of course, that's kind of down the road, and as you said, it's um, it's a little bit more difficult because it's um, well, yeah, it takes more energy for the planes than it does for trains. Now, one of the reasons that I will take a plane over a train is usually not with time, but with price, because a Ryanair flight is usually cheaper than for me to take the train even though i have the time like i would take the train because i have the time but it's a money saving thing so what are some of the things maybe the itc does or um, things that we can do to pressure government bodies to make trains more um, uh, or make them cheaper for the people or to subsidize them in a way because that's something that's holding me back from taking the train as much as i should and as much as i actually would like to it's a good it's a good question um but, but I, I think there's there's a fundamental problem here in as much as if you took all the people off the planes and put them onto the train you would find the overcrowding would be uh, horrendous there's simply not the capacity on rail to cope with um substituting all those people flying 
uh, with putting them onto um, onto rail. And actually, per mile, very good points. Per mile travelled, rail is always just because of the infrastructure that is involved, be going to be much more expensive than uh, than than flying. So, sadly, I think unless the subsidy for rail, or unless you you live in a society where people are prepared to pay um, much more through taxation for uh, rail. Uh, it's going to be quite difficult to make it cheaper than um, than flying without also at the same time putting a lot of extra taxes on, um, on uh, aviation and the flying and trying to discourage uh, using the, as we say, the stick as well as the, as well as the carrot. Yeah, very good planes. One thing right, that um, one thing that should bring the price of rail down is post COVID, many people are working much more flexibly, um, and some research the ITC has done is showing that there's more leisure travel. So the actual demand for rail travel is evening out, and you having you don't have to provide for those peaks in the morning and evening which is very expensive because the trains go into the cities full up and go back empty. So actually it's a lost leader often commuting. Now it's all evening out and we do hope that that might even out the cost, reduce the cost and make it cheaper to, to use rail. Yeah, I mean, I think sorry. Oh, sorry, Matthew, go ahead. I was just going to say that there's a very interesting go ahead, Matthew. Yes. aspect in there, which is that we produced this. Um, we produced the Y Travel book when it came out last year. Of course, with COVID still causing massive problems in terms of travel and, and lockdowns, and had only just had only just ended in the uh, in the UK. Um, and it's been very interesting to look at what effect the pandemic has had on on travel behaviour. And as Chris mentioned, one of the fascinating things at least in Britain is that there's been a very significant shift from in what, why we are traveling, uh, as in we're doing less business travel, there's less commuting, but quite a lot of that has been taken up by an increase in leisure travel. So I think the pandemic has forced people to uh, prioritize what they do when they travel in different ways. Definitely. Well, okay, let Let's touch on that then a bit, because I think some people might argue, oh, if it's just for leisure, we shouldn't be doing it because of environmental reasons, right? But as you mentioned in the book as well, that's not really true because it's healthy to travel. Not only um, it's healthy physically, as you describe in the book, but it's also healthy from a psychological standpoint. Um, so can you touch a little bit more on that, like why we need to travel and why leisure doesn't mean that it's not necessary. Can I just start by referring to the art? And you think about, you know, just think about your favorite music, your favorite paintings. Think of Picasso. Think of Van Gogh. You know, people like that. If they hadn't traveled, what would they be drawing? What would they be writing about and so on? So, and then think about books, your favorite books. Lots of the, uh, that literature, I bet, I wouldn't mind betting, is set in exotic places or places different from where you grew up. So, you know, if you just take that one chapter on the art, 
you can understand, I think, what we're trying to say here on the value of travel. And it's almost impossible to imagine a world, even, you know, before aeroplanes were invented, the grand tour of Europe, discovering America, if all those things hadn't happened, where would we be as a society? We'd be, you know, running around living in caves still, I should think. Definitely. And you're bringing up a lot of the historical aspects of it. But in, in, your, in the book, you also mentioned the study where they just ask people to think um, that they're solving the problem in a place that is far away. Right. Um, like in other words, it was social distancing. So being s separated from an event uh, by the temporal, social or spatial distance actually promotes creative thinking. Right. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, the, the first two chapters of the book are. First two chapters of the book um, uh, were by Charles Pasternak, who was an evolutionary biologist and uh, by Tony Hiss, who's uh, a, a famous American author who's written very widely on a range of things, but he, the, the, the chapters related to his book uh, called In Motion, um, in which he looked at um, the psychological uh, reasons why travel seems to be so important. And going back to your health point, I mean, I think there are two aspects to the health benefits of, of travel. You've got the physical side, um, which comes through the way in which our bodies respond, particularly to active forms of travel, whether that's uh, running, cycling or swimming. Um, there are very clear ways in which uh, our bodies um, tend to produce uh, chemicals uh, which which improve our sort of sense of well-being as well as making us uh, fitter and, and healthier through those different forms of movement. Um, Charles Pasternak's, the Professor Pasternak's, that's very interesting in linking that back to our evolutionary history, uh, back to, say, the, the savannas of East Africa, whereby we had to be sort of scanning wide distances and being able to travel over kind of long distances in order to, to survive and to um, capture the food that um, that we needed to, to survive. As you say, there's been a lot of work done more recently on the mental health benefits of um, of movement uh, and travel. And it became a very important aspect, for instance, during the pandemic, uh, when there were big concerns about what this might mean for people's mental health. Um, and in Britain, at least, one of the key things that people said kept them sane was that ability to go out into their local area for a couple of hours a day, uh, particularly if they were, they were walking or cycling. Um, and that I think on its own demonstrated that power of of just sort of getting getting outside, moving, um, and and feeling the uh, the well being that that just comes from uh, from that in a very simple way. Yes, yes. Um, either thing this makes me think about now. I don't know if I missed this in the book, but do you talk about third culture children in the book at all? Chris, that's probably more on your sociological side. Yeah. Could you... Third, third culture kids. Do you mention that in the book? I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. Expand it a bit. Okay. Because, well, I think it might be interesting for a future edition or just on the site as well. But third culture kids are, are kids like me. Kids that grew up 
in um, three or more different countries um, before a certain age, right? And because of that, they they are very open to different experiences. Those are some of the positive psychological effects, right? They're yeah, usually open to different experiences, open to different opinions. And that defines me. On the flip side, there's the negative impacts as well, where they have a bit of an identity crisis. And when I was younger, I definitely went through that. And I think since I keep traveling and keep throwing myself into new experiences, I do have the negative side of that as well. And I just, I noticed that on a psychological level that travel has done wonders for me, but it also has affected me negatively in some ways, especially with finding identity. Um, Chris, do you have any more insight yeah, that. well, can you help me in other words? Yeah, I mean, the, there are chapters on exploration and migration, um, and the evidence suggests that when people first migrate, say, for instance, you know, people that went to America, particularly in the 19th and early 20th century, they they do everything they can to integrate with that society in the sense that they feel, you know, they've got to prove they've made the right decision, they belong. But then the next generation who are born in America have this great urge to understand more about the society that their ancestors came from and would actually, you know, adopt the food from Poland or Jewish food or whatever their parents or grandparents came from. So it does seem that we need to feel we belong somewhere and have a sense of who we are. And if we have that firmly established, then we can travel around and feel comfortable with it. But otherwise, we're constantly wandering and don't feel we belong anywhere. And that's probably not very good either. So I think the fact that travel enables us to discover our roots or the roots of our grandparents or ancestors and relate to that. So I think that, you know, again, we do need to belong somewhere and explore that. But increasingly, we understand different cultures. I mean, in Britain, the percentage of multi of mixed marriages is increasing, and people are increasingly having one parent from one culture and one from another, and want to explore those two cultures. So, you know, I think as long as you have an interest in where you read, where other societies work and where you might have come from years ago, it's a huge industry in people finding out their family trees and going, you know, back to the countries that they came from years ago. Now, that's, that's a little bit easier for someone like me to do because I can kind of track down my family tree. Um, but what about for some of the people, let's use America as example, because you used America as an example as well. Um, a lot of African-Americans are unable to track their roots down, right? And that kind of also leads to certain identity issues. Um, what are some things people can do in those cases when you can't really track your your historical roots? Well, more and more evidence is coming out of how DNA can identify and track such origins. And, um, you know, I think quite a lot of people are using that to understand more about their origins. 
it is a terrible thing that people who were forcibly taken to America as slaves do not have that history um, uh, and that culture, which they are beginning to discover. I mean, this is the work of James Baldwin. He's written a lot about this, about the importance of that cult cultural background being missing. Mm -hmm. Terrible thing for people. I'm thinking also, Chris, of the, the um, distinction you highlighted uh, based on some of the work that's been rest done recently on, on between people who are categorized, you were categorized as somewheres and people who are categorized as anywheres. Um, do you remember um, that was sort of applied yes, exactly. to political views? What, what was the thinking behind that and how does, how does that manifest itself? I think that um, some people find it quite difficult to take a global view of the world and it's often related to right-wing politics um, with, you know, extreme patriotism. And those people often psychologically um, struggle with their own identity. And it, it, this is shown, you know, in, in debates like Brexit, where a strong element of not wanting to leave the EU was the feeling that it was too big an organisation, we didn't belong. And whereas other people, and particularly there's an age issue here, young people in particular who've grown up with social media um, have this view that we are a global community and that, you know, Spaceship Earth, we're all in it together and that perhaps age is much more important than other aspects of one's identity. And, you know, the gap year, I think, mm -hmm. epitomizes that. So many people have their lives transformed by their gap year. And I think, you know, it's a great thing that that happens. Can I hear a bit about your gap year? Or if you didn't have a gap year, maybe your first um, pivotal tra travel experience. Well, that was... Really uh, learned something about yourself or... Yeah, well, I had um, a grant to do my PhD and go to America to study co-op as a form of organization. And it was enough money for six months. But when I got there, everyone was so fantastic and welcoming. It lasted me for two years. <laughs> um, and, and I can remember traveling across America all around because co-ops are very, funnily enough, very common in America. They have rural phone co-ops and food co-ops, furniture co-ops, all sorts of co-ops. So everywhere I went in America, there were co-ops to study. And I can remember going across America, I invested some of my grant in a sheepskin coat to keep warm in Washington, D.C. And as I gradually got across the the country, I got warmer and warmer. I can remember leaving this sheepskin coat in a dustbin somewhere when I got to Las Vegas. So that was a great year. And... Um, Las Vegas, where I went to a, um, a conference of farming co-op, was amazing. Spending all day talking about farming co-ops and coming out in the evening and the full blast of Las Vegas with the gambling and the lights and Elvis Presley performing live. So that was my gap year. It was great. And then I might add, I got engaged to an American, but then got homesick. So I did a bunk and came back to England. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, 
<laughs> so, well, of course, since you did a figure of PhD, it influenced your career path as well. Um, but anything else personally, like, did it change the, um, change the way you approach life at all? I think there are elements of it. I was asking some, one of the uh, directors of Shell this question just last night. He did a gap year and he was went all over and I said, reflect on where you are today, 40 years later. How did that impact on you? And I think it's a question everyone would ask themselves. Um, and I think for me, it was the understanding how generally everywhere you go people are really welcoming and nice you know i think there's a default part of human nature that you make strangers welcome and it's given me tremendous faith and optimism in the ability of humanity to solve problems you know in spite of wars and things i'm still pretty optimistic based on that yeah. personal face-to-face -face contact with strangers the kindness of strangers definitely and i think that kind of ties into what you mentioned earlier with the politics right where well right-wing politics can be associated with um not having the same global view um and even though i think right-wing and left-wing is a little bit of a false dichotomy uh, i've noticed people who might have certain right beliefs or right ways of thinking about certain issues they go travel, and when they come back, they might still hold some of the same beliefs, but when it comes to immigration and when it comes to certain uh, ways of approaching those policies, they suddenly have a little bit more of a, a liberal approach, which is interesting, uh, just, just through travel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the world's changing all the time. When I, when I was in my teens, homosexuality was illegal, uh, the way women were treated was appalling, you know, and all of this changed. And young people today have led many of those changes, and they don't even remember those bad old days. So, you know, I'm very optimistic about that future. And even, you know, at the moment, we've got the World Cup being played in Qatar, where it, homosexuality is illegal. Well, you know, when I grew up, it was illegal too. But I think the more people see that those things happen and it's quite a normal way of living, um, the better it is. And in the end, I wouldn't be surprised if in even 10 years, countries like Qatar recognise homosexuality and give women more rights. It's unstoppable once you meet other people and are exposed to other cultures. Well, well for, that feels really good to hear from you, Chris, because I, I know you're someone who's very involved and, well, you're, you're an, an expert in all of this. So to hear such, op, in such an optimistic point of view gives me hope as well. Um, so, Matthew, what about your gap year? Well, I, I didn't really, I suppose, sort of have a gap year and certainly can't compete uh, with Chris's fantastic story. But perhaps uh, I would, I would highlight <laughs> That was incredible. I would highlight her her great um, insight about learn travel, helping to learn about the kindness of strangers. The first time I went um, abroad, we weren't at the time. My family wasn't very wealthy, and we hadn't we didn't go abroad. And the first opportunity I had was the um, was the uh, German a German exchange. We had this sort of 
scheme or this opportunity to where where a, a young person from one family would go and stay with um, a young person from another family for uh, two or three weeks as a way of kind of just immersing yourself in this um, in a different language in a different kind of environment. Now I was must have been about. Uh, mm quite 12, 12 years old i mean I, I just certainly didn't speak any uh any german to any any sort of significant degree and suddenly i was having to go off on my own uh, through an airport which i'd never done before um to to stay with this family and it was very alarming i suppose at the time but it was fantastic just because it suddenly uh, not only was i very welcomed uh, and we had a very um fascinating time but it also was something where you suddenly realized that there were other people in other countries who do live like you do and have the same kind of experiences but it's in a slightly kind of different different kind of way and it also i think helps to rethink some of the stereotypes that uh, happen in, in britain for instance there's tends to be a very um because of the history a very popular sort of attitude towards Germany as a, a place that we fought in two world wars and we lose against always in the football. So there was this popular <laughs> uh, relationship. And going there, for instance, and we, we we went to see many sort of places, but also some of those places, for instance, that had been uh, very heavily bombed by Britain and America, the Allies, in the, in the Second World War. And some of the destruction that had been caused woke you up to realise that there was there was a much bigger, a much wider perspective that you get on history from um, from uh, from travel than you would have uh, you would have had otherwise. So that certainly was a very formative experience. Nolan, one of the um, one of the things I regret when I was young. It was quite common to hitchhike, and I think that sadly now people are a little bit more hesitant about hitchhiking. But that used to be great to meet new people and just set off for a day out, and sometimes not know where you might end up and so on. Um, and and you know now people are talking about shared use of taxis, um, demand responsive transport. I was in Cyprus where they have shared taxis which go around the village. And again, that's back to what we were saying earlier about great experience where you you meet other people in a relatively safe environment, but they're people you wouldn't normally meet or relate to if you just drove everywhere in the cocoon of your own car all the time. So I think that, you know, travel in itself is important. And one of the ways I travel around America was by coach or Greyhound bus. And that was an amazing experience. You know, people would get on with chickens and goodness knows what, and you'd end up in the middle of Omaha or the middle of the night with all sorts of odd people and so on. Imagine if you hadn't had that opportunity to mix with other people in that way. And when you meet them, say, I don't know, in a dating agency, it's very artificial in the sense that you're stuck together and you've got to talk. Whereas when you're traveling, you can sit next to someone and not say anything for a long time, but then you can say something without even looking at them because you're both looking forward. So I think there's a lot of dynamics of travel 
which make us the human beings we are, probably. So I'm still interested in coaches, and I'm constantly trying to persuade people to use coaches more. You know, it's not all about trains. Young people do travel by coach a lot, and it's a cheap, good form of travel. And I've actually made a couple of TV programs about coaches. So I'm very pro-coach. Ah, okay. Interesting. Now, um, I don't know the stats on this. Is coach use going down quite a bit or is it is it is it steady? Is it going up? What's what's happening with that? It varies by country and country. I mean some countries don't have a very extensive rail network like Scotland. So they've done really imaginative things with coach hubs just outside the big cities like Edinburgh and Glasgow. Spain has always been good on coaches. And I would like to see the motorway network have, if you like, the equivalent of railway stations, the motorway service stations, so you could get some really good journeys much quicker than going in and out of the cities, leaving the motorways. So I think that would be great, and that would actually be quite an expensive way of travelling. It's true. Definitely. Now, from my experience, what I've noticed in... Um... Well, where I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, well, I grew up in a town close to there, which was five hours away. And we used to have the Greyhound. And that was a really inexpensive, easy way to co commute uh, between the cities. And that doesn't exist anymore. And now people are relying on car share options. Um, do you... Would you encourage people to use car share and to push that further? Um, companies such as Blah Blah Car and things like that, or do you think we should have a stronger push for coaches? I, I think we should do both, but I do okay. think that the countries that have really developed an infrastructure for coaches show there's huge potential here, and you have a lot less carbon with a coach full of people, of course, than you do sharing so do both but um you know i think everything you do it would be great if people had a ration for travel each year yeah. and then people yeah. who don't travel much could sell their points to other people and that would be a good, oh, that's a really good idea what do you think of that i mean some people i it, love that yeah i mean some people oh, way out of, you know, way off the agenda. But I think that would be quite an interesting idea. I think so too. And listeners, please, I'm encouraging you to comment on whatever platform you're listening on right now or tune into Without Borders or check out the website Why Travel. Now, all the links will be in the description and everything we're talking about today, if you have any ideas, um, I think Matthew and Chris are thinking the same as me, like, please become part of the conversation because this is incredibly important right now. Um, yeah. Uh, Matthew, what do you think about that? I think it's a fascinating, it would be a fascinating experiment. Uh, I, I'm sure it would be, I fear it would be politically impossible simply because uh, you can imagine what mm. uh, certain aspects of the media would say that this was like a totalitarian kind of uh, state restricting our travel to a certain number of miles a year and um, people would see this as an incredible infringement on their on their liberties when actually uh, i think as a, as a social uh, experiment it would be a fascinating way actually of, of making travel probably more equitable and um 
and also I think making people rethink why they're traveling if you had a travel budget and where to prioritize their um, travel means. Another question would be, would be how are you going to do it? Are you going to do it in terms of the number of miles you travel each year or are you going to budget it in some other way? Because, of course, if it's by the number of miles, that would encourage people perhaps to focus more on on local travel uh, than on um, than on long distance. You could have a lifetime allowance, couldn't you? And then, you know, you could get to be <laughs> 80 and you find that you used your miles up. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm going to give this some thought. I'll give this some thought. <laughs> um, now to bring this into a slightly different direction, but just talking about equity and all, well, equality here. This is a topic that's come up on the show a few times, and that's kind of the the racism that's um existent in the bureaucratic system when it comes to travel and the ability to move um for instance people who come from many developed nations are able to go to other countries freely and easily right whereas people from a lot of um developing nations they don't have this type of freedom and the bureaucratic process just makes it hell for them and i've noticed it firsthand uh moving to spain <laughs> to be honest, the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy in Spain is slow for everyone. It's a bit of a pain in the ass, or we say in Spanish, "grano en el culo." Um, <laughs> but for me, it's been quite easy because I hold a Belgian passport and a Canadian passport. I'm one of those lucky, lucky guys. Um, but my girlfriend, she's from Ukraine, and she's just been going through hell with the with the bureaucratic process and they make it so difficult and there are so many more steps to go through and it took the war for her to be able to come to canada so she applied just this was just for a traveler's visa right and she's a girl without without a criminal record um like goes to school but doesn't have money in the bank and she's Ukrainian. So even though she's family, because we were common law, um, she got rejected from Canada just for entering for a holiday. And then the war broke out and then she applied again. And then they're like, okay, now you're allowed in. So it took a war for her to be treated the same as I did. Um, what are some ways we can fix that? Because I think that's a huge issue when it comes to travel and, in a sense, transport. I had an aunt. Well, I mean, bit loony, but I think her view was that we should abolish passports completely and see how people distributed themselves around the world. And I know it sounds ridiculous. But I think if we didn't have all these borders and bureaucratic things, we might be pleasantly surprised. After all, in the UK, anyone from the Commonwealth could come and live here until the 1960s when we started having rules about things. And, you know, it was a very reasonable way of managing. We advertised for staff when we needed them in the NHS and so on. And it didn't get out of hand. So I do wonder... What would happen if we just abolished borders, which is, of course, the name of your podcast? And I think <laughs> we panic. So I think a lot about that. Yeah, we think about that. We oh. think we panic about it, and maybe we don't need to. 
it's very interesting aspect because when you say without borders, actually within Europe, there's been this fantastic experiment to remove borders. Um, you know, the whole principle of the sort of Schengen movement has uh, has been to do this. It's very interesting to see the way in which uh, that's, that's developed and um, how that's changed, particularly for younger people, their experience of travel moving across. And interestingly, when Chris mentions about uh, the immigration policy, of course, in Britain until very recently, uh, we had this um, sort of freedom of movement that we were part of uh, in across the whole European continent. Um, and that resulted in, um, you know, a, a very open sort of system of travel across Europe. And what, what has happened, sadly, is that um, as we saw that when that was used by many people to come and live and work in Britain, you ended up with the uh, Brexit referendum, which then uh, put a stop to it. And amazingly now, we're ending up in a situation where I think uh, from next year, people in Britain will face the same, some of the same obstacles that you mentioned, because before uh, the um, Brexit happened, Britain was involved in developing a new mechanism for increasing security around in terms of entry and exit to the European Union, which, of course, all British people are now going to be subject to. And I think with fingerprinting and all kinds of other bureaucratic measures, it's going to be interesting to see how people react when they realise that as difficult as travel out of the UK at the moment is, it's going to become, to Europe, it's going to become a whole lot more difficult from next May. So it's it's a mm-hmm. great idea in theory, but I think as as we've experienced in in our country, um, it's uh, a policy which sadly seems to result in um, in a lot of pushback socially. Definitely, yeah, yeah, complicated issues. Don't you think it might be fun if we had a bigger worldwide system of swapping lives with each other for a year? You know, I wouldn't mind living in Africa. I'd swap with someone from Africa. It would be so easy. He could have my flat and I could live in his heart. Oh, definitely. The people I know who do that, they have nothing but uh, interesting stories and they I've never heard a negative experience from the people who do these house swaps mm-hmm. I've always heard something interesting about it so mm-hmm. yeah I, I'm definitely on that side as well so let's have a um, bigger swapping system <laughs> I agree <laughs> um, now abolishing passports I mean I haven't really thought about that that much I'd have to think about it a bit more to have anything useful to say um, but of course, having more of like a European system spread around the world, that's something I'd be all for. But Matthew, as you state as well, it it's very difficult and that actually might end up resulting in even more pushback in the end. Um, now, an, another thing that I've learned about is the um, this project Plumia, and they're looking to create an online country. And you could, the idea behind it is that you could get a, like a passport from this country and then like that would allow you to travel from there. Now, um, that sounds fascinating. What it looks like is to be able, yeah, it's very interesting. Now 
I'm I'm I like the idea behind it, right? Because the, their mission statements are about making it more inclusive and giving people um, from developing nations the same opportunity to be able to travel and not go through the same bureaucratic or go through those bureaucratic nightmares. Um, but on the flip side, the only way they they're thinking right now to obtain this is that there has to be uh, a certain check, and that check involves your career and your income, right? Which of course, again, causes problems because then you're holding people back who didn't have the opportunity to make a certain amount of money. What do you think about this idea of an online country? Do you, do you think this is a good idea? Do you think this is plausible? I think it's um, interesting because if you think of some of the countries like Ireland, where they've been fighting each other for years, it's all about the boundaries. Imagine if you just self-identified of which country you felt you wanted to pay your taxes to. You know, it would be a bit like the American system of local and national tax, wouldn't it? And then, then you, you would have an income and you would respect the laws of that country and it might avoid many of the territorial civil fights that go on. So I think it's very interesting. I hadn't heard about it, but I'd really like to know more about that. Maybe you could develop that idea, Nolan. Yeah, I'll send it to you. I'll mm -hmm. send you an article I wrote about it as well. It was one of the first articles on my website. Now, the other thing that scares me a little bit from it is that um, it's a sister company of Safety Wing. Now, Safety Wing is an insurance company for nomads. I use them. I I love them. Uh, they were way less expensive than all the others. The customer support was amazing. So as a business, I do like them. Yeah. But just the idea of an insurance company being the parent company of a country, of a, think, of an country kind of makes me nervous. You've hit the nail on the head there because, of course, in a physical country, we have something called a government, which at least in democratic countries, you have some kind of say over who is making the laws and, and what kind of laws there are. Whereas in an online country, you're going to have to have some kind of person or some kind of company, at least that is administrating that, um, that online uh, world. And unless there's some way in which the citizens of that online world can participate in that company, maybe it needs to be a mutual or, or a cooperative uh, to make it work uh, well, mm -hmm. perhaps that's the, that's the next step. Create a create a software uh, cooperative which uh, can operate as the government, and in which all the all the participants have some kind of say. You're going to need that, I think, just politically speaking, in order for it to have to work. I think in the longer term. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Chris, any other thoughts on this? Well. What I think is that the technology that's developing would be actually the route to a very democratically run country because you could immediately vote on everything. You'd have a referendum even more than the Swiss do at the moment. Um, and so you could say that it's a technologically driven democracy, couldn't you? Yeah. Well, a lot lots to think about here. Again, listeners, please become part of the conversation um, and okay well here we're coming up on an hour here but I have a few more things I want to cover now uh, there was one quote uh, Matthew that I 
uh, I didn't fully understand. And I, I was wondering if you could expand on it because it's in the philosophy chapter. And it's okay. one, the, the soul is no traveler. The wise man stays at home. And when his necessities, his duties on any occasion, call him from his house or into foreign lands, he is at home still. Well, I, I think in this in this chapter, I mean, what struck me when uh, when preparing it was that actually a lot of philosophers were real travel skeptics. Um, I think many of them looked at the people around them rushing around and and moving from place to place, uh, and they were some of them were really sort of trying to think about well, what what are these people actually doing? Um, but when reading, you know, for instance, some of the the Stoics or people like um, uh, Thoreau and others, you realise that they actually had made a very good um, a set of very good points, which is that travel is much more um, worthwhile and beneficial when we actually have a good understanding of why we're doing it, and have thought properly about the reasons why we're doing it, and making sure that it's for a, for a good reason, because. As we know, I mean, a, a lot of international jet setting happens really in a, in a way in which people are almost sort of escaping from some of the problems that perhaps it would be better that they sort it out kind of closer to home. Or uh, it may be, for instance, that um, travel is being done for reasons which perhaps uh, are not very... Uh, are not very edifying, for example. Um, <laughs> so, I think I think that was really a an interesting um, way of uh, the, from the from the point was being made a way of trying to get us to think much more deeply about are we travelling for good reasons or for bad reasons? Yes, I can. I have to say, I'm a little bit opposed to that. I think some of the greatest experiences in life are when something unexpected happens and you take a risk. And and I think, you know, carefully considering exactly why you're travelling probably wouldn't go out very much. So, you know, I like chance in life. Well, okay, well... Uh, I think for me... I would, I would say to, to defend Thoreau that maybe um, we're looking at what he was trying to say was that we can get those chance experiences closer to home uh, through observing and interacting more carefully and closely with those around us uh, than having to travel a hundred to a hundred miles to do so. Uh, it's a different perspective. Both both sides can be argued mm -hmm. convincingly. Well, Chris, that actually kind of makes me think of what you said at the beginning of our conversation, as you mentioned, where you grew up, you had uh, in your city um, the section where a lot of, was it? Did you say Hindus? Hindus and Muslims, different Muslims. The town, yeah. And they and they don't mix and they stay apart. Um, now, of course, I think we all kind of have the perspective that people should mix and people should learn about each other's cultures. Um, but someone might might make the argument, oh. I can just stay in my city and I can learn about these different cultures. I can go to the Muslim area. I can go to the Hindu area and do it that way. Now, would you encourage people to do that over traveling? 
or do you think that that it's not really um, a, a yes or no here, like you can do both or you should do both? I think what I was referring to really was the reaction to this idea that Paris has developed, the 15-minute neighbourhood, where everything you need on a very day-to-day -day basis is locally. And great, you know, it saves carbon, but I was trying to counteract that with the idea that you stay in your own little hub with all the things you need for your own culture and it feels comfortable and convenient and you can pat yourself on the back with saying you're saying carbon, but you aren't developing that understanding of what you would gain from mixing better and you don't even go to the middle of town often. And so you have your own culture, your own doctors, your own religious views. And I just felt, you know, I'm not surprised they've started fighting each other a bit because they don't ever meet each other. They don't go to the same schools. They have different schools. That to me instinctively is not a good idea. And I was very worried that the co, you know, the carbon debate was encouraging the development of that, the planning of communities like that. Um, and I felt I ought to counteract that a bit at least. I completely agree with you. If it didn't lead to an audio spike, I would be clapping right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, what, one more, because I, I really want to encourage the listeners to check out your website as well and uh, become part of the conversation. And if you have all these leaflets where you briefly summarize a lot of the points that are in the book as well. And one that I thought was an interesting question to think about, and I was hoping you both could give us an answer, and then the listeners could always tune in afterwards. But it's, what role do the emotions play in our travel choices and behavior, and how can transport systems incorporate these insights? Right, well, emotions and travel. Risk. I know we've touched on it already a little bit, right? Yeah. We've touched on it in different ways, but just to summarize some mm. of the points. I would hone in on loneliness. I uh, think increasingly in our society, people are lonely. It's partly because we're living longer. And, um, you know, there are less, we're an aging society. Many elderly people are alone. Many divorced people are living alone. And I don't think that's very good if you don't travel around and meet other people. So, whereas in the past we lived in larger communities, a lot of life took place in the street, I meet a lot of isolated people. And so I think that travel, particularly the informal travel of sitting next to someone in the bus or a train or a park bench, that is the way forward for humanity and our own mental health. Very uh, good point Chris makes. And on the transport side, um, it made me think of uh, the French are always very good about uh, uh, in their policy making, uh, thinking about these big big issues, and I think there was an experiment um, on SNCF, the um, French uh, rail company, to have different what they called ambiances in their carriages on the on the trains. So I think one was a, a sort of play carriage where you know, particularly for for kids, could um, sort of do the kind of things that 
sort of they they wanted to, to sort of focus on um one carriage was a sort of library carriage if you like for for those who wanted quiet sort of contemplation um i think another was a, a sort of social carriage where you could do your um you could eat sort of around a table and and sort of have a chat uh, so i thought that that's perhaps something that um you can obviously do it on a train in a way which you you can't do in in other places but you could perhaps incorporate it at stations and other other aspects because everybody is facing faces different on a daily basis uh, different issues and you know has is facing a different sort of set of emotions and perhaps perhaps we should think about kind of trying to cater more for for each of those in uh, in the transport planning i haven't thought about that and i love that idea it definitely sounds a lot better than the classist system we have now where you either have the choice between coach and first class but having the choice between okay here's where you can work uh, here's where you can study here's here's where you can socialize that sounds but yeah, that sounds much better I think in on some trains it exists in a way. The trains that have bars, <laughs> you can socialize at the bar and you can work on the seat. But no, I I love that idea. Okay, well, uh, Chris, Matthew, anything else you want to touch on before we end today's show? I think that um, we covered an awful lot, and actually, you've made me think too. I think the conversation has got a lot of open-ended ideas of where we might go. So. I think it's the beginning, not the end of a conversation. And the without borders aspect is really interesting. And if we're going to, you know, find a way of creating peace in the world, I do think travel has an important part to play. That's my last message, really. Well, thank you, Chris. I, I hope we have, I hope I have you on the show again, because as you say, it feels like the conversation has kind of just started. Absolutely, we, we would love to uh, to do that. I'm sure uh, uh, because there's there's such it's such an enormous topic, and one of the things that struck us when preparing this project and writing this book is that travel is such a fundamental part of human existence. Um, it's something which pretty much everyone does in some form or another, and it's another reason, for instance, why on travel and transport questions everybody has an opinion because it's something that. Uh, that we that we all do so as as chris says this is this is very much a way of starting discussion uh, we hope and um and debate and it's it's been a great today to to talk about these issues with you because it's it's helped sort of reinforce you know there are there are an enormous uh, number of ways in which all these questions are connected yes all right, Matthew, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I learned a lot from you. Remember, listeners, this was Without Borders. You can join in on the conversation at withoutborders.fyi and why travel. Links will be in the description. Tune in next time.